Everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. We're on KPFK, thank God, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. And please uh, register on our site, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Kiana Williams will be uploading all the Shows beautifully edited, and there's a, just an amazing backlog of shows from Momia Bu Jamal to Victor Grossman in Germany to uh, Ayuko Babu on the Pan African Film Festival. And we're very happy today to be focusing on essentially a hands off Venezuela campaign, uh, in this case, led by Code Pink. And we're going to have on Marcy Winograd and Leonardo Flores. Are you with us now? I'm here. I am, yes. And Channing Martinez, our co-host and producer, are you on, Channing? I am. Thanks for having me, obviously. <laughs> well, that's good. Still, <laughs> we should always still appreciate each other. So um, let me just frame a little bit what's going on for about five minutes to put basically the Bus Riders Union in Venezuela in one conversation, because they are. In fact, that's been one of the problems in L.A., that we haven't fully integrated all the different struggles to have a greater anti-intervention frame. So I had a couple of thoughts um, to start the conversation. Let's start with the Bus Riders Union. We've been doing this for 30 years, and we've been fighting for free public transportation. No cars in LA, stop MTA attacks on black passengers. And then we say, hands off Venezuela. And people say, what? You're a Bus Riders Union. You're not supposed to talk about Venezuela. We say, what are you talking about? We're black, Latino, Latinx, third world, Korean, 
uh, we're a third world oriented organization and the U.S. is imperialist. So we don't want buses inside the imperialist uh, white settler state while the United States is going to be attacking people in the third world. And most of the people on the buses actually like that. And by now they get that. That's interesting about the bus riders union. The late Maria Gordado said, the bus riders union is my favorite organization because you're the only ones who stand up against La CIA, the CIA. And that's how we attracted some of our great members. Okay, so on March 25th, which is a Thursday, the MTA board is going to be voting again on insanely or obscenely $110 million additional police budget to a totally $650 million police budget. What are the police doing? Locking up black and Latino people for eating a sandwich, having an open beverage, not paying their fare, essentially criminalizing the black and Latino and female working class. We have a chance to win this. We've defeated it in committee. It did not get a recommendation. I want to thank Mike Bonin for really great, City Councilman Mike Bonin, for some very good work on this. Uh, then it went to the board for a vote, and it didn't seem to have the votes. And even Mayor Garcetti is asking, why do we need another $110 million? And the reason is because they already overspent their budget. Now, we want to cut their budget by 50%, and we want no police on the trains at all. So that's March 25th. And that's a fight against transit racism and a fight for not just environment in L.A., but that our emissions are hurting people all over the world. So we have to get people out of their cars, into the buses, 24-7, free public transportation with zero emissions. That's fight number one. And uh, Channing will tell you later how to reach us, but certainly info at the Strategy Center will get you started. Then part two is Venezuela. Um, my friend Manuel Criollo, with whom I've worked for about 20 years, was kept talking about Hugo Chavez and the Chavista Revolution, and, and of course I was very interested. We read uh, The Chavez Code by Eva Golinger, and um, we were invited to Venezuela by a lot of the uh pro-Chavez, obviously, groups to say you should come down for the election, not as observers, but as uh, supporters. So it was pretty amazing. This was 2006, and we're in Caracas, and the, we're there for the vote. He had won, but this was his, I sent his re-election, and first full election for a full term. And at five in the morning, and I'm in a really nice hotel, I have to say, and the bells and the bells and the bells are ringing and ringing and ringing, and I'm thinking, wow, it's a very religious country. Everybody's going to church on a Tuesday or something. And, of course, I knew that wasn't true. So I, I looked downstairs. I think it was probably still dark. I went down out into the street. There were thousands, thousands of people already lining up to vote for Hugo Chavez. It was the most brilliant, moving uh reflection of mass participation in election and the people on the line were overwhelmingly uh, indigenous and black and people of all races but uh, and working class. And just to end the story as we get to uh, Leonardo and Marcy, 
And in the middle of this, there were a couple of uh, women, very nicely dressed, sort of Euro-oriented, let me just say that. And I said, well, what did you think in my limited Spanish? So what do you think about Hugo Chavez? She's a murderer, communist, uh, dictator. And then she said, look at all the people on the street who like him. How could you like this? I said, well, you made you made it very clear, ma'am. Thank you so much for your complete contempt for the thousands of people that you must have just come out of the hotel to vote or something. So if you didn't understand the class struggle and the race struggle inside of Venezuela, I want to thank those uh, women for explaining it to us. All right, so we know that that to end with terrible things is that you heard even Bernie Sanders say some very bad things about Maduro. You know that the word Chavez and dictator are just automatically thrown out, that you know when our side wins an election, it's, it's an unfair election. And we know the United States has a million black people in prison. So in this context, we got this great email from Marcy, who's a very good organizer and who sends us, you know, we're on the code pink list, that tonight at 5 o'clock, which they're going to explain, there's a stop the embargo, hands off Venezuela, essentially teaching, and my understanding is calling to Congress. So uh, perhaps, Marcy, you could briefly, first of all, very happy to have you both on the show. The whole show is about supporting Code Pink and supporting the, the, the long-term movement to get U.S. out of Venezuela altogether. I thought, Marcy, if you could just explain right away the action item and then, Leonardo, if you'd be willing to, after Marcy, take us back a little bit, certainly from the beginning of the Maduro administration to the present, and what is the present crisis that the Biden-Obama administration, essentially, is carrying out? And then we'll go from there. Is that okay? That sounds great. All right. First so, all, Eric. Yes. First, I want to thank you and the Bus Riders Union for your leadership in challenging this obscene budget for the police on the buses. I, I didn't under, didn't realize what was happening, and I certainly want to help you get people to that to that meeting to protest and object to this. Wow, that's that's unbelievable. Uh, we need the police out of the buses and out of our schools, and I'm 100% behind you on that. Uh, I just thank want to, you. Tell your listeners and, and invite your listeners to join us on Code Pink Congress. This is an offshoot of Code Pink. I'm a volunteer coordinator for this effort. And we host shows, Zoom shows, every Tuesday night, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And the, the Zooms are focused on demilitarization and foreign policy, issues are, that really unite uh, the movement for demilitarization in the United States with demilitarization of U.S. foreign policy. And so, as you mentioned, tonight we'll be looking at Venezuela. Each time we meet, we include speakers. We usually have one or two speakers and a question and answer period. Uh, we draw typically two to 300 participants on our Zoom calls. And then we end with an action item, as you mentioned. Great. So tonight we will be calling members of Congress. We'll be emailing our senators and the White House as well to say, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. And yet, the Biden administration has yet to reverse these these horrific sanctions, increased sanctions that Trump imposed on Venezuela. Venezuela is struggling uh, to obtain vaccines. This is uh, this is you know have a heart. This is unfair. This is outrageous. We need, we need to 
to uh, no longer recognize this guy, Juan Guido. He was not properly elected as the president. And this is uh, an attempt, a backdoor attempt at a coup. And we want the sanctions lifted immediately. In the past, we've had shows that, you know, challenge this, uh, the Biden administration's consideration of adoption of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism that conflates it with anti-Zionism. We've uh, urged our legislators to co-sponsor Senator Wyden's bill to lift the embargo on Cuba. Uh, We are always pushing for cuts in the Pentagon budget, which is now an obscene $741 billion. And on our Code Paint Congress website, we have outlined how we would cut the Pentagon budget by a mere 73%, right? <laughs> Over $500 billion. So I would invite anyone who wants to join us tonight, by all means, you can sign up. I'm going to give you the, uh, the URL at codepink, C-O-D-E-P-I-N-K, dot org, backslash Congress, Or you can just Google it and it'll come right up. So that's the overview. Okay, that's great, Marcy. And let me start there for a minute and uh, looking forward, Leonardo. Um, I think one of the things we're trying to do on Voices from the Frontlines, and by the way, we're also happy that uh, this becomes a podcast. It's up on Spotify. It's up on Apple. It's going to be on um, uh, a couple of others <laughs> that I forgot. But we, So we, we do the show Tuesday at 3.00. Then, again, we're so excited to work with Kiana Williams from The Feminist uh, Magazine, who also works with the Strategy Center. So she edits the show a little bit, makes us sound even better. Not that we don't sound great out there, folks. And then we get it up as a podcast. We're going to try to get it up every Wednesday at 3. And that if you didn't make it, you can listen to it because we'll send you a link. So it could double the political impact of the show, which is terrific. And I want to, I just realized, Marcy, that because you're doing it every Tuesday at 5, we could often do announcements because we're always on Tuesday at 3. So, uh, That'd be fantastic. You know, so yeah. we could just think about that for a minute. Uh, sure. Later, I want you to come back and talk about the contradictions inside the Democratic Party and where the elements of hope are. But, uh, Leonardo, I know this is work you do. Uh, I believe you are, are you from Venezuela. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. Congratulations. Uh, Very cool country, amazing country. And um, why don't you tell us sort of the, and and I'm giving, you know, you're a good organizer, about 10, 12 minutes, I said 15, but about 10 or 12 minutes on the sort of from Maduro to the present uh, with a big focus on the present. Is that okay? About all the different elements of U.S. intervention, U.S. sabotage, U.S. everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll try to you know, keep it as brief as possible so we can continue the discussion. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for this invitation, Eric and Channing. Uh, and I'm super uh, glad to express solidarity with the uh, uh, bus drivers because, I mean, not just because, but one of the reasons is that President Maduro himself was a bus driver. He was a union leader. He comes from the transit union and those struggles. And then he kind of, uh, you know, worked his way through the government until eventually becoming president. Uh, but that anecdote you mentioned at the beginning of the program, it's very telling, right? Because just the fact that Maduro comes from a working class background and was a labor leader, that's enough to disqualify him in the eyes of a certain percentage, that's right. a certain sector of the Venezuelan population that really is extremely racist and classist. Uh, and so that's kind of, and these are the people who have held power traditionally in Venezuela, 
really until 1999 when Hugo Chavez uh, uh, came into office and he managed to change the course of our country. So unfortunately, you know, Hugo Chavez died eight years ago, almost to the day, eight years ago on March 5th, uh, 2013. Venezuela held, he was still the president at the time, and then Venezuela held a special election uh, about a month and a half or two after he passed. President Maduro, who was then, uh, uh, he was the uh, vice president, I believe, he, he won the, those elections against, you know, a very typical opposition neoliberal guy. Uh, but while he was expected to win that in a landslide, it was actually much closer. The, the end result was right. about 1%. And so the United States at that time, you know, smelled blood in the water. And they thought, well, this is going to be our opportunity to overthrow the Venezuelan government, to crush this socialist revolution, Chavismo, which is the the movement behind President Chavez and President Maduro. And so that was their kind of idea. As soon as Chavez died, as soon as Maduro uh, won a very kind of closer than expected election. And so the first thing the Obama administration did at the time was fail to recognize the election, right? And then they said, you know, oh, we never recognize winners of, of you know, votes because we don't want to interfere, which is ridiculous. Every time there's a vote in another country, the United States sends a message of congratulations to the winner. But they didn't do that in this case in Venezuela. Eventually, the, the issue of recognition, they, they just kind of accepted that he was the president and didn't, they didn't make more of an issue of it. Later on, the Trump administration would seize on this idea, and we'll talk about that more in a bit. So then I'm going to jump ahead to, in, yes. to, in order to be brief, and I'll, and I'll jump ahead to 2017, uh, when there were very kind of violent right-wing protests on the streets of, of Caracas, the capital city in Venezuela. Uh, and when I say violent, I don't just mean that they were beating people up. I'm talking about protesters who had homemade explosives, who had homemade uh, bazookas, they had guns, they were booby-trapping streets, like putting barbed wire on, uh, between two lampposts so that people on motorcycles would be decapitated, and there were examples of that happening. Uh, so it's very kind of brutal violence that was carried out in an attempt to force the government out of office. It was kind of a, an attempt at a color revolution. Eventually, uh, you know, the way that this, these protests stopped is that President Maduro called for the new constituent assembly to write a new constitution, and the day after the vote for that constituent assembly, somehow the protest stopped, and it seemed like Venezuela was going to be on a path towards stability again. Uh, later that year, there were gubernatorial elections, and the opposition fully participated. And in fact, they not only participated, they said, well, we're going to sweep these elections. And when we do, Maduro has to step down because we see these elections as a sort of referendum on Maduro's Well, the actual opposite ended up happening, right? The, the opposition thought they were going to win in 18 out of the 23 states. In fact, the total opposite happened. Chavismo won in 18 of the 23 wow. states. It became very clear that the opposition was totally disconnected from the Venezuelan people. Uh, they thought they had been the majority, but that was not the case at all. And these were elections that were free and fair in, in an electoral system that is really much stronger than anything we have in the United States. I mean, very briefly, I'll talk about it. You know, it's a digital system, but it prints a paper receipt. So you can verify <laughs> yes, that the computer yes. accurately captured your vote. And then the paper receipts are counted and verified against the digital tally. And there are many, many audits along the way in the system. So those elections, I mentioned them. I mean, they're only gubernatorial elections, but I mentioned them because those, that was the last time the opposition fully participated in elections in Venezuela. 
since then, they've undertaken this kind of plan of partial boycotts of the election because it allows the extremist opposition, who are literally fascist, some of them, others are more right. kind of neoliberal in nature, right. but some are very definitely fascist under you know classical definitions of the word. And it allows them to say, well, this whole system is illegitimate. We don't recognize it. We want to take power for ourselves, and we're going to do it by any means that we can, including calling for sanctions on Venezuela, including calling for a U.S. invasion, and we try attempting to, you know, foment an insurrection within the country. Uh, so that's kind of the context that the Venezuelan people have been living under, uh, particularly over the last four years, because everything got worse uh, during the Trump administration, because Trump really kind of doubled down on these extremist elements of the of, of the opposition. Uh, Leonardo, right? hold it so, just for a second. I want to just comment on something and keep you going. I mean, it's very striking to me how, and I have some later thoughts, but about how third world revolutions uh, in the age of U.S. imperialism are, it's a miracle we win anything. I mean, they said, all right, this is going to be a referendum. Now, if you win all the governorships, that has nothing to do with overthrowing the president. So you won the governorships. But they said, no, it's a referendum. And if we win, he has to step down. But then when we lose, they lose. Knowing the U.S. is behind them, and that's what I'm getting to, all these moves could not take place without full understanding that the CIA and the Obama administration and later the Trump are completely going to support any madness that they come up with. So it's just interesting that they called a referendum. They said the gubernatorial election would be a referendum. They lost the election, and then they just say, well, it was a fraudulent election anyway, and the U.S. press and the Democrats repeat it. Do you think that's yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and what's even worse is that, you know, the opposition actually won an election, and that was in 2015 when they were able to take the National Assembly. Right. Uh, and that was the one time that they actually accepted the results, right? right? So the electoral system is just fine when the opposition wins, but when Chavismo wins, then there's very serious problems and the whole system is somehow illegitimate. Uh, so that's kind of the argument that we've been dealing with in Venezuela. So let me... No, now 217. Yeah, let's go on to 2018 now, because in early 2018, it was the Venezuelan government and opposition were actually very close to signing the comprehensive agreement uh, as a result of months of dialogue, and it would have, you know, changed the country, made it much more stable. But what happened was that the Trump administration didn't like it because Maduro would have still been in power, and they didn't want that. And so they said, you know what, Don't, they told their, their counterparts in Venezuela to not sign it. And instead, the U.S. sabotaged that, that kind of peace deal by, you know, threatening to welcome a milita uh, military coup and saying that, you know, we might start imposing oil sanctions on Venezuela. So that was a sign that they, the Trump administration didn't want peace. Three months after that, Venezuela held presidential elections. But in the run-up to those elections, the U.S. threatened to sanction any opposition candidate who ran, and they also said they wouldn't recognize the results of the elections regardless of who won. So because the extremist opposition at that point had said, we're not running, the moderate opposition was pushed into not into attempt into a partial boycott as well, or at least some of them. Because so which is kind of mind boggling that, you know, the opposition keeps saying that they're the majority, but they don't want to go to free elections because they know or they fear that they'll lose. So in 2018, instead of having, you know, the full participation of the opposition, instead you had, you know, a moderate opposition guy who ran and he got a couple of million votes. He didn't come close to beating Maduro, but 
uh, this vote was kind of delegitimized in the eyes of the international community. And when I say international community, you can't see me, but I'm making quotation marks because really it was delegitimized by the United States right. and by the European Union. Right. Uh, but it was not based on any sort of fraud. You know, I mean, we see that all the time in the in the corporate media that, oh, fraudulent Venezuelan elections. No, there was no fraud. The only thing that happened in the 2018 presidential elections was that the extremist sector decided to boycott. So Maduro wins, and you know from then on, it, it, the, the opposition took on this very kind of interesting tactic, or crazy tactic, really, because in 2019, the, uh, this guy becomes the president of the National Assembly, which at that point was still controlled by the opposition, this guy named Juan Guaido. Right. Juan Guaido is a guy that nobody knew before January 2019 in Venezuela. He was a legislator, yes, in the National Assembly, but he was kind of like a backbencher. He was this very kind of unknown character. Suddenly, he becomes selected to be the president of the National Assembly, and then within weeks, he declares himself president of Venezuela with the full support of the United States. And actually, it turns out that this was a plan by the United States to impose uh, what they call an interim government, but really is a coup government on and I mean, I'll jump ahead because so much happened in the, in the last two years in terms of attempted coups, attempted insurrections. But really, the most important thing to understand the harm being done to the Venezuelan people right now is the crippling economic sanctions that have been imposed on the country in one way or another since 2014. But that really intensified as of 2017 uh, with the Trump administration. These sanctions, you know, they've cost the Venezuelan economy, according to one local economist, $194 billion. Right. Oil revenues are down 99%. And Venezuela is a, a country that is, its economy is basically completely based on oil. It is, uh, uh, you know, it's the one industry that dominates everything. That's right. And, uh, you know, our economic fortunes go up and down depending on the barrel, of the cost of a barrel of oil. So oil revenue is not down 99%. According to CEPR, which is a think tank in D.C., uh, the, the first sanction imposed by Trump in 2017, in the first year of those sanctions, they estimate that 40,000 people died as a result of those sanctions. In 2020, a former U.N. independent ex expert said that he, he revised the death toll, and he said it was likely closer to 100,000 people right. who have died because of the U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. Well, this Last is... month, there was, the U.S. even recognized the, the harm that the sanctions were come, uh, causing, right? The, the U.S. Government and Accountability Office, they issued a report that recognized the negative impact of sanctions on the Venezuelan economy and that they, and they recognize that sanctions affect everything, including health care and power generation. So Venezuela has had blackouts, intermittent blackouts since 2017 because they can't import the, uh, the necessary spare parts to fix, you know, electric generators or hydroelectric dams, because, of course, these were built when Venezuela was very close to the U.S., so the U.S., they use U.S. parts, which are now banned right. from, from coming into Venezuela. So there's this whole list of things of how the sanctions affect the daily lives of people and how every sec sector of the economy. And last month, the, the UN, uh, U.N. Special Rapporteur visited Venezuela, and she issued this preliminary report stressing the illegality of sanctions, because sanctions, as the U.S. applies them, can really only be applied by the United Nations. They're not supposed to be unilateral, but the U.S. does it anyway. And it's really a, a collective punishment of a civilian population 
which under the Geneva Convention is considered a war crime. So that's how serious this is. Leonardo, know, I'm going I'm to have you. I'm going to have you right there. Okay, I want to, because uh, that's great, and and I mean it. Uh, I wish we had a two-hour show because that was a terrific short story. It, it could have been the story of Allende. It could have been the story of what they've done to Cuba. It's, but it's horrible. It's horrific. And uh, so now I want to move. First of all, I want to take a short break. Uh, I want to tell people this. You're on KPFK. And again, Leonardo, terrific. Uh, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. Where you're listening to the voices of Marcy Winograd and Leonardo Flores, both from Cold Pink. You'll be hearing the voice of Channing Martinez in the second part of the show. And you, this, I'm Eric Mann, the host. I just want to take a one-minute minute, uh, music break just to take a break for the listeners and then come right back uh, with Marcy. I want to bounce it both of you about what's going on with the uh, Biden administration. Where is uh, AOC in this? Where are the squad in there? Where is the hope? Uh, we know about movement building, but are there any forces inside that are fighting against the sanctions? So let's just take a one minute, truly one minute, and we'll be right back with everybody. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. I'm Manuel Zuberi Fields, KPFK's general manager. Our winter fund drive is in full swing now. The Fun Drive is a time we come to our listeners to celebrate our accomplishments and impacts KPFK has had in your life and the communities we serve. Without the financial support of our listeners like you, KPFK would not be able to air the programs you love and rely upon. When you give to KPFK, you're investing in your local community. Your contribution makes programs like Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott, Rising Up with Sonali, Something's Happening with Roy of Hollywood, Background Briefing with Ian Masters, and the 6 o'clock news possible. Keep your favorite programs on the air and the support staff behind the scenes working for you and your community. Your support now helps us end our drive as soon as possible and reduce the interruptions to your favorite programs. Call 818-985-5735 or better yet, donate online now at kpfk.org slash donate. Well, that was an appropriate announcement from Anyel Fields that we're always raising money at KPFK. We just finished the fund drive and right after the show, I'm going to try to get the results from last Tuesday. Um, well, this is, you know, heartbreaking and, and uh, excuse me, I mean, one thing I wanted to say is that uh, amazing that Nicolas Maduro, to follow, you know, the most charismatic man in the world at the time, uh, who had so many more electoral skills and the full support of the army and, you know, was a giant, and to come in and have the will to replace him and do the amazing job he's done. I just want to acknowledge that, that there's, un, you know, it's not that Chavez wouldn't have had enormous problems, but you get it. I just wanted to acknowledge that Maduro, I don't follow him as much, but very, very impressive man to have continued this fight and to have the will. Do you agree with that, Leonardo? Yeah, I do. And one of the reasons he's been able to do it is because he comes from a labor background and knows how to build coalitions, knows how to negotiate. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think that's been a key. Very important. So, Marcy and Leonardo, but, uh, and here's the thing I want to understand. You know, when we, uh, Marcy, you know, we've done this our life, and 
uh, when I started organizing against the war in Vietnam in 1965, we started with, thank God, you know, uh, Wayne Morris and Ernest Gruning. And the fact that we had two senators, even if the votes were 98 to 2, that opened up a tremendous opportunity. And then Core and SNCC, with whom I worked, SDS, you know, one by one, we started peeling off Congress people who were playing very important roles. Uh, where will we tell us the, the specific demand first? You know, who are we asking to stop what? And then the second I, thing is, what is the balance of forces to get that possibly accomplished? Great questions, Eric. Thank you. Uh, this is Marcy Winograd. And uh, first of all, in terms of our demands, we want Biden to reverse Trump's executive order, which recognizes Guaido as the legitimate, legitimate leader. The, he is the illegitimate leader right. of uh, Venezuela. And also uh, makes, in so doing, makes available to Guaido the money. Uh, I don't have the number, but I'm sure it's a lot of money that's been frozen in Western banks as a result of these sanctions. And just recently, uh, the Biden administration said it it had no intention, I think it was Secretary of State Blinken, no intention of reversing Trump's executive order. And uh, which is, you know, terrible. Uh, So we need to push back hard. And I have some thoughts on that. Uh, It appears from where I'm sitting that Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken, Kamala Harris, are taking their marching orders from Senator Menendez in New Jersey, who is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So if you want to change U.S. foreign policy, you have got to organize in New Jersey. Okay, New Jersey has two senators on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Menendez is the chair, and he is a rabid anti-socialist. Right. Isn't you know, he a, a rabid other... anti-Castro as well? As- oh, yeah. Anti-Cuban? Just the, other day, he, just the other day, he authored an op-ed in the Miami Herald that said normalizing relations with Cuba is the dumbest idea ever. Those were his words. So, All right. So Biden is, is afraid of him. And he chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Cory Booker, also from New Jersey, is on that committee. The ranking member who was the chair before Biden ascended to the White House is Marco Rubio, also an rabidly anti-socialist. Right. So you've got these two guys who are about as right-wing as they come running U.S. foreign policy. Now, Code Pink, we are organizing in New Jersey. We need help. You know, We have reached out to our supporters in New Jersey. We would love nothing better and to see this guy removed, Menendez, as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now, that's, that's a tough task. Right. It's not an impossible task, but it's one that, you know, to be realistic, probably uh, is a far-fetched demand. On the other hand, making that demand is important yes. because it can weaken his authority. And it can show that there are forces pushing back. And, uh, you know, people are watching and people are listening. So I think that's very important. And if anybody has thoughts on New Jersey, uh, please email me, Marcy, M-A-R-C-Y, at codepink.org. Again, we're going to make an effort to say that we want him removed, you know. And we've got a letter in the works, and we're going to ask people in New Jersey to sign on and national allies as well. So that's Menendez. Uh, On the issue of the squad, 
You know, AOC has gone back and forth on Venezuela. Initially, she said she didn't want the U.S. to intervene. But more recently, she said that she is going to follow the Democratic leadership on this. Why? I have no idea. I have no idea. Why would you follow the Democratic leadership on foreign policy? That's crazy, right? So uh, I'm not quite sure what the subtext of that is. I was a Bernie delegate. I love Bernie Sanders, you know. Uh, Bernie, however, has not uh, been supportive of the Democratic Socialists, by and large, in Venezuela, right. and has been very critical of Maduro. So as in the left, on the left, we need to get that message to Bernie. We need to reach out to our brothers and sisters in Vermont to get that message to Bernie. Uh, so those are some thoughts I have there. Ilhan Omar, on the other hand, you know, from Minnesota, right. she has been tweeting in uh, opposing U.S. policy on Venezuela. So there's a there's a difference within the squad on Venezuela, and, and I think that your question, where do they stand and where where can we uh, find a way in on this conversation is a, is a salient question and that we really do need to reach out more to the squad, to Bernie Sanders, to Na- the Nation magazine, to every, every journalist on the left to say, hey, come on, step up and speak out. Well, uh in that I'm an organizer, I have a couple ideas as well. Is that okay? Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. I would love to hear them. Well, I think the first thing is everything I think about is long-term, right? I mean, the structural right. changes we make, uh, we do something today that's got to be a, it's got to be an opening to a next movement, what's the next move, and so forth. So I think that the, I, I'm calling it the teaching tonight, which I like, but, uh, you know, because it's a teaching and then an action item, right, is great. I think the first thing we have to do is, all right, I'll just tell you my thoughts. One is that I think we want to tie Menendez around Biden's neck and keep saying everything Menendez says, say, let's be clear, Joe Biden said that, and ask Joe Biden to disassociate from Menendez more than simply trying to remove Menendez, which you won't. You know, I mean, the guy is a fascist power there, but it doesn't mean the demand to remove him, I think, is great. So let's start there. But then the question is, who would support that, right? Which Congress people would vote? Which senators would vote for that? Cory Booker, you know, I would think is a very weak generally on everything. So what I'm getting to is this, the, the first issue is AOC cannot get away with this, that one of the things that's going on inside the United States is that there's this domestic progressivism that is essentially pro-imperialist. And we've had this fight our whole life, right? And it's hard when a McGovern really stood up. I mean, if you go back and read his statements, that Vietnam is the the moral crisis of the United States. The United States will fall in Vietnam as a moral force. No one's speaking like this. So we have to, right? But I'm getting to is that AOC does something great. She's adulated. There has to be a campaign to say, we call on you. Every time she says something like that, first you said you wouldn't even vote for the minimum wage. You know, you wouldn't vote for the uh, package because the minimum wage for $15 wasn't in it. You said you're not even sure if you're a Democrat. But now you say you're following the Democratic leadership on sanctions against people in Venezuela. So I'll say that I'll start writing something about that because that's what I do, right? I mean, it's... Is we after I investigated, is let's find out the squad members and give support to Ilhan Omar and call on 
there's got to be a call on people to do something, as you've said, right? So the first yes. is to yes. call on uh, people to remove Menendez, which is a great campaign. But then I think we have to always put it in the back, of, in front of the Biden-Harris administration, because they are doing some very good things in some in classically center-right ways that are so much better than Trump, and we want to be able to find ways to deeply appreciate some of the things they're doing. But they're also trying to rationalize imperialism. You know, that's I, what I they, couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more with you, um, Eric. And then I want to let no, please, please. Uh, I, that was just to start I, a conversation. I, I just think that it's 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 still stunning to me how compartmentalized we are as progressives. Uh, so many groups looking only at domestic policy, not at uh, our imperialist foreign policy, not making the connections. And I'm also uh, working as an aside with Veterans for Peace, and Great. we're trying to set up a, a meeting with Kerry to talk about how militarism fuels the climate crisis and right. to, to show the intersectionality of those movements. But again, those movements also are com- compartmentalized. And absolutely, we want, you know, tonight our demand will be of Biden and of our Congress members to speak out, uh, to lift those sanctions on Venezuela so they can get vaccines, et cetera. And to and knock off this recognition of this guy who's never elected as president right. of Venezuela, so he, he shouldn't have his hands on any of that money. Those are the immediate demands. And then absolutely we have to, you know, and as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, yeah, we have to formulate a whole Twitter campaign around this squad in Venezuela. That's a, a terrific idea, and we can get on that right away. Well, thanks, Marcy. I mean, that's what you and I do. <laughs> and Leonardo, I know you got yeah. a lot of thoughts, but— Let's talk about this. Let's, I mean, again, terrific summary. Where are you thinking about areas of, you know, uh, organizing, areas of uh, pressure? And then, Channing, I'm going to ask you on behalf of the center, you know, in our early thinking, uh, what are some of the things we could do immediately to be of help? So we'll come to—Channing uh, Martinez, by the way, ran for city council in the 10th district, and he got 2,400 votes, 5% of the total, and about 10% of the black vote. And he ran on no police in the schools and cut the LAPD in 50% and hands off Venezuela. He already brought that issue into the black community. So in a minute, we'll hear some thoughts from Channing. But uh, Leonardo, what are you thinking about? What, what kind of organizing are you doing? What, what thoughts do you have about how we can win this campaign? Yeah, and I think the, the fact that you brought, brought up the black community is really important because they're the black community has consistently been on the side of Chavismo and the Bolivarian Revolution that's in the right. past 20 years. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, a point of leverage that we can use. And and on that point, you know, we have Gregory Meeks as the uh, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And Meeks actually went to Chavez's funeral in 2013. Meeks huh. has a history with Venezuela. He was part of this thing called the Boston Group which was uh, legislators from the U.S. and from Venezuela that got together to engage in dialogue following the coup in 2002, the U.S. backed coup. And so that's one of the things we're going to work on is to pressure Meeks to really come up with a new approach that isn't based on sanctions and is based on dialogue. Uh, I think Meeks might be open to it. It's certainly going to be an uphill battle, but uh, that's one of the pressure points that we're looking at. And another one is that, you know, we're on various coalitions that work, work on sanctions on, on a more general level, not right. just sanctions on, on Venezuela, but sanctions on, I think there are something like 39 countries that have sanctions on them. Uh, and actually, the Biden administration, one of the first things they did when they were inaugurated was issue a, a review of sanctions 
uh, as it pertains to the global response to the pandemic. Uh, and so that's very welcome. And, right. and I think one of the ways that we, we can help Venezuela is to aggregate it with this issue of sanctions on all these other countries and show that sanctions in general are bad That's and good. not just make it specifically about Venezuela. Because to be honest, Venezuela is kind of toxic for many Democrats because of the power wielded uh, by the Cuban-American lobby, lobby, particularly in Florida. Uh, and, and, you know, given that Florida was a swing state and the deciding state for so many elections, uh, that's why Democrats never really wanted to speak out against what the Trump administration do, was doing or even what the Obama administration was doing. But now that Florida, uh, that you know, that Trump won Florida but lost the presidency, I think right. that's going to open up spaces for, for more conversations like that. Well, if I can say, that, uh, I think what's great about what you're saying is every one of these, you know, I think about a campaign as one large campaign with the goal of winning the whole ending of sanctions. But then we have what we call campaigns within a campaign. So the Greg Meeks campaign is a campaign. That's part of the thing. The extending, not negating, but extending the the discussion about sanctions and even exposing that sanctions is little more than murder. You know, so don't act like you didn't do anything militarily. Uh, I also think we're working. I don't know if you know we're working on on Saturday. We're also going to be having a a block party at 3546 Martin Luther King at the Strategy and Soul Movement Center. We're focusing on a rally for Africa because the vaccines are not getting into Africa. So the, the issue that you raised about sort of imperialist intervention in the third world combined with the denial of public health as one element of sanctions is another, I thought, really good point. So we can keep brainstorming, but thank you for the work you're already doing is the point. And I'm excited about trying to figure out how to be of help. Uh, I, I think you are already of help, Eric. I mean, and I'm so glad that Channing brought up uh, Meeks because he's been terrific. Well, he's been good on Haiti. You know, he issued a letter to Biden saying uh, that we should not we should change our policy toward Haiti, uh, that we should not be supporting the extension of this corrupt leader. And so forth. So I think Meeks is definitely an is definitely an opening there. Channing Martinez, what's on your mind, brother? Well, I think the main thing is I'm learning a lot. I don't know very much about you know the politics within the United States of how to get you know our demands met in in uh, Venezuela. Even though I've called for it for many years, right? Um, and you know, uh, I think the strategy center tend to want to, we want to do something. We tend to just take it out into the streets. We're good at that. Like we're taking all of our politics out into the streets this uh, Saturday with our block party. And you know, just already, if you're already doing these teach-ins every Tuesday, I think we want to mobilize for a few of these Tuesdays as a beginning step. And then we'd be open to hear other ideas of how we can support as well. Well, I think what, to just build on that, Channing, and I want to explain to uh, uh, both of our guests, to Leonardo and Marcy, that the Strategy Center is trying to reopen. We are at South Central and stra- right at the corner of King and Crenshaw, the most wonderful corner in Los Angeles. Uh, and we have a four-storefront uh, Strategy and Soul Movement Center. Uh, film theater, a book, beautiful bookstore, and we're going to be out there Saturday from 10 to 4 with, uh, I'll be there uh, signing my books, Playbook for Progressives and Dispatches from Durban and 
Katrina's legacy. We're going to have uh, great strategy in soul dogs, which I, is my specialty with all the condiments you've ever seen. And uh, we're going to be selling high-end sneakers, and we're selling plants, and we'll have music. And we have these great masks, uh, Bus Riders Union uh, COVID masks. We call them anti-COVID, anti-imperialist masks. And there are, uh, say, uh, we want a 1,000 more buses, a 1,000 less police. And we're going to have a great time. We're trying to, a lot of the people in the community have said, you need to get strategy and so open more. And the other thing is going to be somewhere around always between 12, there'll be a 12 o'clock and a 1 o'clock political education, 15 minutes, you know. And we're going to talk about Africa, and we're going to talk about Venezuela, we're going to talk about the buses. And you're absolutely right, uh, Leonardo, that the black community from Muhammad Ali to, you know, Bob Moses to uh, Paul Robeson and W.B. Du Bois, et cetera, has been the most dependably anti-imperialist. Uh, and we're going to go talk to Karen Bass, and we're going to go talk to Holly Mitchell. We're going to talk to everybody we know. Because often what happens is you go to an elected official, and they think you're going to talk about buses, and they will say, well, what do you think about Venezuela? And they go, Venezuela? I thought you hear about buses. And then they, but they get it. And if enough people who are not coming simply to do Venezuela, as it were, if we can get more immigrant rights groups, you know what I mean, more black groups, to build this in, and I hope it's okay really quickly, Leonardo, what is the black population of Venezuela and the whole, just for a minute on that or two, about the whole Afro-Venezuelan movement? I didn't want to forget that. Yeah, so in terms of numbers, it's a little complicated because, you know, Venezuela has a very long history of racism. And in the one of the last censuses about 20 years ago, uh, there was this belief that, you know, people didn't want to identify as black because right. they kind of internalized that racism. <sighs> uh, but, uh, you know, one of my good friends is one uh, Afro-Venezuelan. He's kind of the premier expert on, on the Afro-Venezuelan diaspora. And he says that... You know, Venice, black Venezuelans might make up something like 30% of the population. Right. And that to me sounds about right when you look at people on the street. You know, just, I mean, it's hard right. to tell, obviously. But uh, in terms of, you know, you know, I think the white population in Venezuela is fairly small. I would say like 10, 15%. Everyone else is either black, indigenous, or mixed of some sort. Right. Uh, and it's been a big challenge to, to fight, uh, you know, against racism in Venezuela because it's not recognized as much. Well, I would love to, because we sustain these conversations, uh, why don't we just assume this is the first of many? I mean it. We, we'd like to study more. I'd like to find the connection with the uh, Afro-Venezuelan brother you're talking about, if it's a brother or sister, and we'd like to talk to them. Uh, Marcy and, and Leonardo, we're going to work on this. You know, we don't... Uh, I, I, I appreciate that offer. I think it's a terrific offer. I value it. Uh, you know, we've got to work together as organizers because this is, it's it's daunting, right? It's uh, very daunting. Very daunting, but we got to do it. We've got to forge ahead because uh, our policies throughout the world reflect a criminal enterprise. There's no other way to put it, right? And well, we have to be a dissident voice and get organized. Have to. Well, I have one positive th thought behind all your other positive thoughts is that I think when an opposition in the United States becomes, uh, what's the word, uh, codified and coalesced, that people know there's a pro-Venezuelan movement. I mean, everybody talks about the pro, the anti-Cubans. But how about the pro-Cubans? 
why aren't we more of an organized force that people understand? Why isn't there, um, you know, if they understand there's a pro-Venezuelan self-determination movement in this country that has people in Congress who listen to them, who has uh, one by one public figures speaking out, they watch you. The other side watches you, and they see whether you're growing or not. And as an organizer, there are years when we're not growing. And I know that, and the other side knows it. And I can feel my influence diminishing. There's other times when the word is, oh, God, you guys are on to something. I know that. And doors open. The same door that closed starts to open. So I want to give a lot of credit to Code Pink, by the way, to end this. Uh, we didn't go to the phones, everybody, because I really wanted the fullest conversation here. And we'll, we'll do this again. But I want to ask you both to end with this. Tell us a little. We have about two minutes. Tell us a little bit how Code Pink operates because it's a great organization and it's taking a lot of leadership and break it down a little bit about, since you both work for it and with it, explain how it works as an organization and how people can reach you and all the stuff and then talk again about tonight's program. Leo, you go first. Sure. So I think the coronavirus pandemic obviously changed how we work quite a bit. Uh, before, we used to were kind of well-known for disrupting acts of Congress, yeah. hearings of Congress, and, 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 and things of think tanks. And so now it's a little more, much more online. Uh, we're doing a lot of online petitions and delivering them, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of actions directed at Congress. Uh, but I think in more general terms, one of the things that we like to do with Code Pink is find issues that are really kind of being ignored and shine the spotlight on them and kind of take the flack for shining the spotlight on it and then make it and kind of normalize it, normalize saying, hey, you know what? It's okay to say no, to, hand, to say hands off Venezuela. And then we, we don't have to be attacked for it. Right. And lastly, I just, I really love the vision that you just presented and I'm on, on board with you 100%. Well, good. We'll keep talking about that because that's, yeah. Once we break yeah. into that, it changes everything. But thank you. Uh, Marcy, last thoughts? and, and uh, Yes. To, to add to what Leo said, it, it, at Code Pink Congress, an offshoot of Code Pink, right. uh, we've been uh, successful on some of our campaigns. For example, we pushed back very hard against Mike Morrell being the CIA director. He was a torture defender. We pushed back on Michelle uh. Fornoy being Secretary of Defense. She wanted to basically, she was very provocative about war with China. We pushed back and, and said we want Mali as a U.S. envoy to Iran. Uh, we, we pushed back and said uh, we want aid to the Palestinians. We want uh, to reverse the terrorist designation on the Houthis in, in Yemen so that we right. can stop this humanitarian crisis. So we have had successes. We want to have more successes. I invite everybody to join us. Uh, Code Pain Congress, you can look us up online and sign up that way tonight, 5 p.m. Uh, join us. And the URL for Code Pain Congress is codepink.org backslash codepinkcongress. Codepink.org. You can also email me, Marcy, at codepink.org. That's great. Can they get you too, uh, Leonardo? Is that okay if they do you too? Absolutely. Leonardo at codepink.org. You guys got a good system. And it's Channing, <laughs> it's Channing at the strategycenter.org. So, everybody, we're going to end by saying this that I'm going to be on the Code Pink call tonight. I'm really looking forward to it, actually. I, I think we could start building a, a, a more sustained relationship between both Voices and the Bus Riders Union and Code Pink, you know, because I think these Tuesday night organizing sessions are great. And, uh, you know, I think our first ga goal is going to be uh, 
to get the U.S. out of Venezuela. Then we'll overthrow the government, and uh, you know, but one step at a time, right? So, uh, <laughs> well, I'm excited about working with you and Channing. I think it's uh, it's phenomenal. I, you know, we we can do this. We can do this, and you know, we got 35 percent of the police out of the schools. We got the okay. we got the schools to return their weapons. We got the schools to stop ticketing black children. We got hundred and we think twenty million dollars for black schools. It's hard, but we can win. And big props to Code Pink, to Marcy, to Leonardo, and to Channing, and to our listeners, and to Nina Simone, who says, as always, I did it my way. <laughs> That's what we got to do, folks. We do it our way. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. I'm your host, Derek Mann. Uh, I thank D'Angelo Jones, who makes things happen for us. And again, uh, Marcy Leonardo, chanting on a shout-out to Medea Benjamin for very heroic work that you do, Medea. All right, everybody, show up at 5 o'clock. you got your orders. Take good care. We'll see you next Tuesday. Step, step, hello.